So our viewers uh, may know who you are, and some hopefully we have some new viewers from around the world watching too as well. David, first, why don't you give some background, a little bit more background on who you are and your experience uh, with vaping and tobacco harm reduction? Sure. Well, I'm I'm a lawyer. I have worked. Uh, I was the first lawyer in the world to work full time on policy measures to reduce cigarette smoking, um, starting beginning of the uh, the 80s. Uh, I've played a, a big role in a lot of the legislative measures to reduce cigarette smoking. And part of that all the way along has been an interest in what do you do to reduce the risk uh, for people who are going to continue to use nicotine. I mean, it's simply a rational approach. We had provisions like that in Canadian law in the late uh, 1980s that I helped write. Uh, we lost those due to a challenge by cigarette companies. Uh, I've stayed involved in that. I mean, the, it's just simply... You know, in all the work that I, I've done globally on tobacco control for a very, very long time, if it's going to be about public health, you know, not about religion, not about saving souls, telling people how to run their lives. If it's about public health, you have to accept that there's a huge continuum of risk for the products. And we should be doing everything that we can to empower people to make better decisions about their own health, to reduce their risk dramatically. And so my interest has been on things like snus, uh, moist snuff, pharmaceutical nicotine, a whole range of lower risk products. And as vaping came along and some of the newer technologies, I mean, that, that has been so important as something that can replace cigarettes. And we're talking about something that globally is going to be killing in excess of 7 million people this year because they're inhaling smoke into their lungs. Nicotine's not the problem. Uh, so this is actually a simple problem to, to solve, and you can imagine how frustrating it's been with, for me for you know a career trying to get people to say, you know, it's the smoke, stupid. You know, we deal with the smoke, we solve this problem. Why do you keep attacking the alternatives to cigarettes, uh, protecting cigarettes, rather than working pragmatically to do the things we should be doing in public health to help people reduce the risks? Now, Chris, you are in charge of educating young minds. Do tell. <laughs> yeah. Um, for better or worse, I'm a professor of psychology. Uh, my training is in developmental psychology, mostly child development. And my work has been about particularly youth health and well-being and identity formation. And of late, I have become very interested in how, so we as parents and teachers and politicians as a society, we create the world in which young people develop, right? We set the boundaries, we create the context and the environment. Um, and so when we make policy changes, we need to be more mindful than I think we have been about what are the implications for young people, right? How could this possibly have a detrimental effect on young people's well-being? And I think in the kind of debates around tobacco harm reduction, that's just true in spades. If you could think of ways to do this badly or more poorly, I can't because they've been exhausted more in the US than in Canada, but we're, we're catching up, right? Um, so I, I think just thinking about the implications of policy for youth health and well-being is kind of my more narrow focus, um, but I think, I, I just think it's important. Right. I, I deal with it all the time with university students. So, so that's my story. And you've also uh, got an expertise um, with the science, too, especially in terms of understanding uh, experiment structure and so forth. Fill us in. Yeah. Um, I mean, as a 
psychologist trained to be a psychologist, you spend an awful lot of time with statistics and experimental design. And um, when I first started looking into the tobacco control research, I was stunned at the incompetence. I, I just kept reading papers and saying, how did they ever get this published? Who, who are the peers who reviewed this? Who are the journal editors that published it? Who are the granting agencies that gave them a big bag of money to do this really terrible, terrible research? And I, I guess I would have hoped that in the last 10 years, it, it would have improved, but it just simply hasn't. There's just a kind of mechanism for grinding out this stuff that seems inexhaustible. Um, so, you know, you, I could take some of these papers and get my undergraduate students to read them. And all you have to say is find the fatal flaw here and they will, right? You don't have to be an epidemiologist to, to understand this stuff. There's just really, really bad science out there. And that would be fine if you're just wasting people's time reading journals, but um, governments are taking action on this. Granting agencies are giving out huge amounts of money to perpetuate this. And that just seems frankly wrong to me. David, from a kind of global level, because you've been at that perch, what is, who is tobacco control um, and why are they going so awry? Uh, I mean, it, it's, it's, a, it's a big tent uh, and there, there are real uh, debates you know, within the, the field. Um, you know, the idea of control when we're dealing with, uh, with anything that's causing disease is about limiting the, the harm. Uh, you know, we talk about mosquito control. Uh, that's different from eradication, where you say we're just going to eliminate something. And what we've got is a whole lot of people look at this as something that needs to be eradicated. Like we're just going to end nicotine. Uh, and it's it's the field attracted a lot of people, and I've I've talked about this in, in various places that people who are essentially dragon uh, slayers. You know, they they thought they think they're fighting evil. It's not about the people who are using nicotine. They think that they're out to destroy sin, to attack a devil. Uh, any tactic is acceptable when you're doing something like that. They totally lose sight of, of what's going on around them. But this isn't all of tobacco control. There's, there's a lot of very sensible people who are paying attention to the science. And we often cite the UK as a good example of this. But we also see that I mean, ironically, the countries where the tobacco control establishment is really weak are the countries that seem to be doing the best job of reducing cigarette smoking. Japan being the classic example where cigarette smoking has plummeted in recent years at a rate unprecedented in any major market. And one of the defining characteristics of Japan is that the anti-tobacco movement isn't very strong. So you're actually able to move forward with reduced risk products that people can move to. When we look at places like the United States, where the abstinence only, the moralistic part of tobacco control is very much uh, in ascendance, uh, we've seen where cigarette smoking was falling far more rapidly because of people moving to vaping, they managed to reverse that. You know, they came up with policies that actually moved people back to smoking. And, you know, we see this elsewhere, and I think it's, it's best understood as... And we, we run into this on, on many other issues as well. People who feel that they're fighting sin, you know, rather than having a pragmatic approach to what they're doing. So if you take this absolutist view that, that someone is a sinner, you say, 
you have to repent. Like you have to feel really bad about what you're doing. And, and then you have to do penance. Like you have to really struggle uh, in, in order to overcome this terrible sin that, that you've been engaged in. And if you don't, you face perdition. You know, you go to hell or you get lung cancer or whatever. Uh, and it's, it's that moralistic part that's really infected this, this whole community uh, and has been horribly counterproductive. That's where we see the stigma coming. The, you know, how do we make people feel like crap? How do we coerce them? How do we force them to change? And that is completely opposite to what you do in a good practice of public health where we talk about meeting people where they are, understanding their lived experience, uh, seeking their guidance in terms of what they want, uh, empowering them to make better decisions about their own health. I mean, all that seems to be forgotten with this very authoritarian, quasi-religious views of, uh, of many of the people who got into the field. And, and sadly, there, there were an awful lot of very good people who were doing things to reduce cigarette smoking. They were very marketable, moving into other areas, doing other things. And I think a, a lot of people who got into this as a moralistic thing um, just stayed because it isn't like they had a lot of other options in their careers. Chris, Dave just mentioned uh, the U.S. You did as well. What's your assessment in terms of the things that have happened down there leaking into Canada and the rest of the world? Uh, well, I want to go back just to what uh, David mentioned at the beginning, and you talked about eradicating nicotine. And I think what's changed in the last 10 years, 10 years ago, it was eradicating smoking, right? Mm. And then vaping came along, and now suddenly nicotine is the evil agent that must be eradicated. And I think that really changes the climate in terms of tobacco harm reduction, and it changes it for the worse. Um, so what I said about what's happening in the U.S. is leaking into Canada, There's, there are several facets to that. One is the moral panic, right? The epidemic of youth vaping in the U.S. is now being replicated in Canada and something must be done. Oh, look, here's something. Let's ban flavors. Let's tax vapes. So, And this is what I was saying at the beginning. If you could think of a, a worse way to do this, I can't, right? So thing one is reduce the attractiveness, appeal, and accessibility of vaping and other products for adult smokers. Everything that you do to do that will keep people smoking. It will do nothing to eradicate the teen epidemic of vaping or smoking or anything else. So taxes, um, bans, they just, they, they, they don't work. They're counterintuitive. And you could predict that from every other prohibitionist activity we've ever engaged in. Um, but it appears oddly that Canada is leaning back toward that U.S. prohibitionist view in a way that they weren't even three or four years ago. Right? They maybe had some problems, how Canada did, but um, it looked like maybe if they were serious about striking a balance, maybe they could do it. So they had plans for um, marketing, what you could say as a vape shop owner to smokers who come in off the street and express interest, right? That's never really happened. Um, and now, you know, in, in British Columbia, we have this 20% tax on vaping stuff. And first of all, that's just going to keep people smoking. The, the less, the more you make the price the same, they're going to keep smoking. Um, the other is, I keep waiting for, well, where did that does that 20% tax go? Does it go to smoking reduction, teen education, anything that might be of value in terms of tobacco? No, it goes into general revenue. 
Um, so imagining that magically raising a tax is going to solve the problem um, is just wrongheaded. And David, the uh, federal government in Canada and actually down in the U.S., Congress appears to be moving in a similar direction in terms of a national excise tax on vaping products. Yeah. What do you make of that? It, in, uh, in two words, it's crazy. Uh, we're dealing with substitutable goods. And we have a long history of seeing how you can move people from a more hazardous to a less hazardous product or service. And tax plays a huge role by shaping price. So if you look at what many countries did in moving people from leaded to unleaded gasoline, change the taxes so the unleaded gasoline is actually cheaper at the pump and people move. I, what I played a huge role in, in what we did in using cigarette taxes as a way to reduce uh, consumption. And it was a blunt tool, but it was the most effective one we, we had in those days. What we lacked were really good alternatives. So when economists speak, we're dealing with elasticity, the, the diff how price affects demand. What we didn't have working for us was cross elasticity, where you put up the price of one thing, but you keep the price of an alternative lower. So, you know, so that if I'm wanting to get you to buy oranges instead of apples, I want the oranges to cost way less than apples. And you can look at them, you decide, you move your preference from one to the other. And we were seeing this with vaping products that not only were they massively less hazardous, but the sorts of things one could buy in a vape shop were also way less expensive than buying cigarettes. So that was a real win. A lot of price conscious people were moving to vaping and, and health was only one of the considerations or some of them was all about price. So here we are taking what could be the most powerful tool that we could have in moving people away from a product that's killing tens of thousands of Canadians and millions of people globally every year because of a toxic delivery system. It's the smoke, stupid. We could move them to alternative products by giving them accurate information and having differential prices. And it's actually something that Ken Warner, French Luke, and I wrote about in the New England Journal of Medicine five or six years ago. I mean, this is a real simple thing. Have differential pricing to encourage people to move to the lower risk products. And what we end up with are people who claim they're anti-smoking, but they're doing things to protect the cigarette market because we already have the research saying, if you put up the taxes on vaping, you end up with more smoking. You know, and that's, that's no surprise uh, that because these are interchangeable goods. So, so again, this is this eradication, moral, we're attacking sin, all sin is equally bad. Uh, and if we end up doing something that causes people to do something that's far worse, far more likely to kill them, well, that's not our fault. You know, we're, we're fighting the good fight against, uh, against evil. It's I mean, I, I just, it's abhorrent. It is abhorrent. And, and it runs counter to, I don't want to use the term common sense. Actually, I think it just runs counter to what we know established in the way people behave and act. I mean, if tobacco control doesn't understand that taxing either direction doesn't work, what the hell are they doing applying taxes to any product at all? I mean, cl clearly for me, and I mean, absolutely 100% after 22 years of smoking, it was the taxes that beat me down. I mean, I was a two-pack-a-day smoker. It was 2015, and all of a sudden I'm realizing I'm spending $9,000 a year, you know, post-tax dollars. And it was the dollars that got me to quit. And then now I see all of the prices of vaping products here, at least in my home province in British Columbia, and it's going to be the same everywhere else. The taxes get implemented on this, pushing it back up towards smoking level. 
It's yeah. almost enough for me to pick up a pack. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I mean, it's the, the absurdity of it is, is it's just extraordinary because we have had these movements on other things. When you look at alcohol prohibition, the war on drugs, uh, the war on sex outside of marriage, you know, the, the war on uh, women using any sort of birth control. I mean, we've had these moralistic campaigns all about the, the sort of stuff uh, Lisa McGurr writes about in her wonderful book, The War on Alcohol. How do you use the power of the state to impose your moral views on the behavior of others? And the thing is, it keeps coming up. We see it again and again. It is invariably a disaster, and people keep trying to do it. At the same time, we have this very long history of the sort of stuff that uh, Steven Pinker writes about in Enlightenment Now, of how if we use reason, if we use science, if we're humane, you know, the principles of the Enlightenment, we accomplish amazing things. So look how much less hazardous workplaces are and automobiles and, and aircraft and food products and pharmaceutical products and you know, buildings. I mean, we have just massively reduced risk for so many things. And yet when we come to the most risky consumer product you know, we've ever had, it's been given a pass because to a large extent of the people who claim they're the ones trying to end it, but they're doing abstinence only, very similar indeed to people in the 1800s who were opposed to any form of manufactured foodstuffs. And as a result, they held back uh, sanitary standards because they just morally, they didn't want people to be able to buy food like that. They should live out in the countryside, breathe clean air, grow their own food, go to church on Sunday. And if you could buy manufactured food, they might move into the city. And all sorts of terrible things, immoral things happen in cities. We need to prevent that. So for heaven's sakes, we don't want safer food because that would encourage people to do that. And we've run into the same sort of nonsense now of, of those who are ignoring the science, they're ignoring the rights of consumers, they're ignoring basic public health principles, and a classic uh, hallmark of people who see things in a moralistic way, they refuse to discuss it. So if you say, let's sit down and talk about this, you know, you have a, a certain view here that is at odds with what I think, how about we, you know, get together and have a chat? Um, and in any sort of scientific discipline, in, in any true public health profession, you do that sort of thing. You're trying to learn, you're trying to do a better job. And one of the really distressing parts of this field, and as I say, I've been in it for, for so many years, uh, is that a lot of people I've known for decades absolutely refuse to talk about their views. They will not. So you feel like you're talking to somebody who's got you know, bought into some weird conspiracy theory or uh, uh, a, a crazy religious idea. They're a member of a cult. They can't afford to let anybody try to crack that that worldview that they've managed to develop. And that's a sure sign they're wrong. I mean, you know, that's the hallmark of a closed mind where somebody says, you know, I'm not willing to discuss it. And I, I think, will attack you if you try to make me discuss it. Sure. And I, th and I think it's... Uh... It's a problem for me because uh, there's a lot of control in tobacco control. The ability of public health to actually get in, as we've certainly seen uh, with the pandemic, to get in, make decisions, lock you down, do all these different things. And they've been exercising similar kinds of control around tobacco now for some time. Chris, I want to I get back to the young people here for a second because that is, is fundamentally, it seems like, if you look around globally, 
even it's still, it's the Evalley scare. So the so-called vaping related lung illness and the teen epidemic in, in air quotes. What do you think about that? And let's use Canada as an example, because here Health Canada is using 2018 and 2019 data on youth use during that spike of when, you know, Juul hit the market and the epidemic with Juul had really kicked off in the U.S., and, and that's what they're using to justify these draconian, potentially disastrous measures here in Canada. I mean, are they, is it fair to be using, you know, numbers that are now multiple years old? There's no fair here. Mm-hmm. It just fits their narrative, right? It fits their narrative. Youth rates are skyrocketing. Something must be done. Let's put some taxes in. Here is something. Let's do this thing. So I also just want to go back to what David was talking about, that when you wrote that paper five years ago or more, your ideas about the effects of taxation were theoretical, hypothetical. Well, now we have really good data out of the states from Minnesota and Massachusetts that shows that's exactly what happened, right? Smoking rates stay up. Youth smoke cigarettes rather than vape. And so if you're unwilling to learn from the clear evidence that's in front of you, then you are bound to make mistakes. If you are making federal policy regarding youth or adult behavior about anything, and you're using old, inaccurate data that happens to fit a particular kind of prohibitionist narrative, then you're at best doing a disservice to the citizens of the country. Let me toss this out to both of you. Um, We're looking at the time here. We've still got a few minutes left like to talk about Bloomberg's, whichever one of you wants to first, you know, grab that, uh, that ball and run with it. He's had a tremendously uh, negative influence uh, on this debate, I'd say globally. And that is definitely my opinion on that. Who would like to take up Bloomberg? No, I, I can <laughs> try to deal with it. Um, Michael Bloomberg's a prohibitionist, uh, or certainly his policies are prohibitionist. And he says prohibitionist things. He wants to ban these products. Uh, and he's got a tremendous amount of money that goes into this. Uh, and then tying into what we were saying earlier, um, there was a fantastic article written in the Chronicle of Philanthropy just a few weeks ago that took Bloomberg to task. Uh, it quoted me and, uh, and a whole lot of other people in that, uh, including people who have run some of the major health foundations in the United States, talking about just how counterproductive this has been. Uh, and challenging tobacco-free kids and the Truth Initiative and uh, Bloomberg's organization on the the counterproductive nature of what they are doing, and they're doing it globally. That got a response from from Matt Myers, the tobacco-free kids, and uh, the people from uh, from Truth and the the Bloomberg staffers that was just nonsensical. I mean, what they wrote was nonsensical. Clive Bates then put together, and I recommend anybody look at clivebates.com, his, his blog, and, and maybe you can give a, a link to the. He completely demolished the arguments that they had made in response to this Chronicle of Philanthropy article. And in a rational world, you know, if we were following the principles of logic and the Enlightenment, there's now a case there that Matt Myers has to answer. And you know, having known Matt for decades, I've written to him and said, you really need to answer this. You can't just ignore it. I mean, here, here's the case. You know, what are you going to do about it? You know, and he he absolutely refuses to engage. And, you know, to, to me, that's just saying guilty as charged. But 
you know, I think it's important that people put pressure on these people that if somebody does a real critique of what you're doing to show that it's counterproductive and it's really well documented, that isn't the sort of thing you ignore if you're at all scientific, if you're at all professional. That's the sort of thing you ignore when you're a religious fanatic, uh, if you're a conspiracy theorist, you know, if, if you're out in some rabbit hole somewhere. And that's how they're acting. You know, it's it's almost like the the conspiracy theorists have taken over leading positions in, in tobacco control, and they've got a whole lot of, of money from Bloomberg to do tremendous damage. And so, uh, I mean, and, and I, I'm, I'm concerned that the, 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 the show could be like a, a real downer. Uh, and I just want to say, what's amazing is that with all this aligned against vaping, vaping still doing very well in a lot of places. Risk reduction products are doing phenomenally well in a tremendous number of countries globally. And we are seeing entrepreneurs and consumers uh, and uh, scientists, uh, technology experts who are finding ways to do end runs around all these crazy rules. You know, the latest being in the US with saying, you know, you've deemed vaping to be a tobacco product because the nicotine comes from, from tobacco leaf. We have now found ways to make synthetic nicotine. Doesn't require tobacco leaf. We're not caught by FDA anymore. and. So I, I would also say that despite all the Bloomberg stuff, despite all the abstinence-only people, despite governments that are into moral panics, there's a long history of, of science and rights and, and entrepreneurs winning on, on these sorts of issues. Uh, it's frustrating how long it takes, but, but ultimately that tends to happen. And, uh, and I think that's worth mentioning. And Chris, last word. Uh, well, I, I couldn't agree more with what David said about Bloomberg. I think the other interesting and maybe hopeful note is that in the past, Bloomberg has used his billions globally in ways that are especially dark and troublesome. And now in some places in the world, not the US, but in the Philippines and other places, um, activists are starting to, to fight back, right? They're starting to mount legal challenges to what they're doing in those countries and how they're moving money around in, in various ways. So I think that synthetic nicotine and the kind of entrepreneurial spirit, and also I think the kind of fighting spirit of vapors who, look, I quit smoking. You may not like how I quit smoking, but I quit smoking and I'm not going back and I'm not letting you take this away from me. Um, I think we can take at the moment what appears like a little bit of comfort from that. 